0: What of the Jews is Paul's opening concern and question, although it's going to become a much bigger question than that. It really is the question, can the word of God fail? Because it kind of looks like it does. Can the will of God fail when God says he wants something and he doesn't get it? Does that mean that God is unjust? Does that mean that God is imperfect? And then again, what of the Jews? For here's this people, Israel, set apart by God, deep in history, who clung to the promises, who clung to the signs and symbols and priesthood, who had, to be sure, faithful people looking for the Messiah. And yet among them, they as a total body, rejected the Messiah, and even as many believed in his resurrection and formed the foundation of the early church, many more hardened themselves against the work of the Holy Spirit and set themselves to be a religion largely founded on the rejection of Jesus. Now, let me emphasize that I'm not in any way talking about what someone might call racism, I'm talking about what you believe. And whatever reason a man might have or a woman might have for calling him or herself a Jew, generally the thing that most unites all of them, including the ones who are atheists, you see a lot of them in Hollywood, the ones who are liberal, that is, they don't keep most of the rules, but they still have all the culture, And then those who are really serious about it, that is, they go to Jerusalem and put their hand on that wall every day and they pray to God for mercy that the temple would be restored. The thing that unites all of them is that they reject Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And Paul's question is not so much what does that mean for them. The answer is very clear. They've been cut off from salvation. His question is why and how is it God's fault? Paul's answer to this is going to be that the hardness of anyone at any time against the election of Christ, that is, against Christ saving them, someone who hardens themselves against that will always serve the purpose of saving those who believe. I'm going to say that again. Whenever God allows someone to harden themselves to the point that God now keeps them in that hardness unto damnation, it will serve his saving you. And in this, no matter what else we might think or feel about how this works out intellectually, it's good news. It's good news for you, which is why to reject it intellectually is kind of foolish. Now, as I used that word intellectual twice there, I must say Romans chapter nine is as tough a cookie as you're gonna find in the entire Bible. This morning, you're going to be challenged to have to really think. And if you don't, you're going to tune out. That's fine. We'll see you next week. But if you want to be in Romans 9, you're going to have to think. I encourage you then to find the text in your pew Bible, page 945, or in the Bible that you brought with you, because it's really going to help you kind of stay tuned in to follow through as we go through all of this here. Um, In that, though, also, this is a challenge with the Bible. Right? Like it's, it's simple enough that a child can learn he is risen. Hallelujah. You even find that a child, say age seven or eight or nine, can learn this is my body. A child can get a lot of stuff, but you also have stuff that is so deep, so hard, that scholars themselves bang their heads against it and never really quite know for certain. And that's, again, what Romans 9 is not only going to be, but I would contest to you, that's kind of the point. The point is to show you that the mystery of God's will isn't for you to know, aside from what he reveals, which is that he's chosen you. And you say, but wait, why? But wait, what about those others? He says, that's not for you to know. I've chosen you. And you say, that's not fair. And he's like, what are you talking about? That's not fair. I've chosen you. Do you see how the intellect can get in the way of the trust? And that is kind of the challenge here. Even though, as a Christian, there's no reason to reject your intellect. There's no reason to reject the knowledge of God. Paul wrote the text for it to be understood. Yeah? But, again, if you don't get all of it today, that's, that's okay. And that's part of the point in some way. All right. So, starting in then, I keep stepping on something. It's my shoelace. Give me one moment. I'm going to not fall out of the pulpit here. All right. Starting at uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Paul is going to introduce this question about his brethren. Remember, as he talks about the Jews, he is one. This can't be racism. Racism doesn't even really exist until it gets created by Marxist theory in in the 1900s. The idea that people hate each other, that they don't like things that are different than them, that tribes are at war with each other, that cultures are distinguished and some are better, some are worse. That's been around a long time. Racism is kind of a new idea. That happened last night. And has nothing to do with my mic. Just hit the power on the, on the bar there for a second. We'll see if it comes back. happened last night randomly don't know what caused it yet so test test how are we doing can he is is the mic on or not i can't tell no yeah i can shout i'm gonna take the headphones off though if i'm gonna do that not waste the the body pain they actually hurt your head by the end of the morning believe it or not all right so i'm gonna shout by the way When, in a year or so, we want to take the carpet out, and I say, I want to take, this is why, okay? You'd hear me better if the carpet was out. All right. Racism, I was saying, is an issue of the present age trying to pit peoples against each other based upon categories of victimization. That has nothing to do with this text. Paul is actually concerned about a tribe of people, a group of people who are more concerned with their bloodline than with the truth. And he's gonna say in a moment that he would rather go to hell than have them not believe, but it's not actually up to him. And that is to be the spirit that we read this in and hear this in, and especially internet, the spirit you take this in. That we would, like Paul, give ourselves up if it were us up to us to be the substitutionary atonement. The Christian's going to feel that. I would rather die than have someone else go to hell. But the thing is, that's not what I'm for. That's what Jesus was for. That's what Jesus did. And so if you reject that, you reject that. All right. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God had failed. So you see there, Paul's concern for them, his heart for not only unbelieving Jews, especially them, as one who's part of them. But you can take this today and apply this to your American brothers and sisters that do not believe in Jesus, that are led astray by all manner of confusion and tyranny, and a wicked zeitgeist that's turned everything topsy-turvy, you could wish that you could give up something to make them all believe again. Yes, but again, there's nothing you can do. Paul then points out how the Jews are special. As a people, they were given the entire Bible before anybody else. They were given the specific worship of God before anybody else. They have the patriarchs and the prophets. They have signs and they have wonders. And yet Christ stands before them and they say, you have a demon. Now, is that every Jew that ever was? No, it's not. But it is every Jew that doesn't believe in Jesus. In fact, it is every human who does not believe in Jesus. So then he asked this question then, does that mean the word of God failed? He promised to Abraham that from his seed would come this people who would believe. What happened? Why do some of them not believe? And the insistence here, the rest of verse 6 is key. Well, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's the same thing he said back in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that Judaism is not a matter of outward things like circumcision. Judaism, if it's true, is a matter of inward things, that is, faith in the God who gave the sign of circumcision. But that God is Jesus. And so now circumcision and old wineskin is passing away, and the new wine has to be put in new wineskins. Think baptism. And so again, regardless of if you are Jew or Gentile, it's not about the external thing, the water, the water's there to be sure, but it's about the internal thing, the creation of faith in your heart by the promise of God. So that a Christian is not one who is one outward, but one who is one inward. The same text applies, yes? And then again, coming back to, does that mean the word of God failed to the Jews? No. Because he didn't promise that every person who would ever be born to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob would be saved, only that they would have the promises of salvation. And that's a very key distinction, right? So that, verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So it's not about whether or not you were born to Abraham or born to Judah or born to David. There's only one man that matters for, his name's Jesus. For everybody else in all human history, what matters is do you have the promises and do you believe them? Yes, and that's what it means to be a child of the promise and heir of Abraham's faith. Now, what he's going to do next in the text is go to some Old Testament passages to prove his point that not everyone descended from Abraham is actually a child of the promise. So it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And verse 9, for this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, there's a lot of story behind that statement. But key for us this morning, man, is that Abraham already had a son. His name is Ishmael. He wasn't from Sarah. The promise was to Sarah. And so Ishmael, he doesn't get to be part of the covenant. Also, same thing, one generation down, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Notice the R applies to everyone, not just Jews. Our forefather Isaac. Though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of the one who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. That's what we heard read a little while ago. And then I believe from the book of Isaiah, the prophet, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob, I loved. But Esau, I hated. Okay, now there's, there's a lot there. Let's leave the hated for a second and, and back up to... Well, that's cool. Hi, Hugh. That's not Hugh. Yeah. That's Micah. Um, that's okay. Back up to verse 10 again. So the idea is before these two boys are born, when they're still in the womb, verse 11, they can't have actually done anything to please God or to make God despise them. But God chooses by prophecy one of them anyway to be the bearer of his covenant. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Esau died an unbeliever, but for the sake of the theology, it does mean that God chooses those who are saved and those who are not saved are not saved. And we'll come back to that too. There's a a hiccup there we're gonna have to face. And that hiccup is about this idea of election god's purpose of election think about what you think of as an american with the word election what do you do you go somewhere nearby there's a booth you go in you have a choice you make the choice you elect somebody now huh free and fair who knows the one you want uh maybe not but nonetheless the idea is the same you choose okay now God's purpose of election is God's freedom to choose. In order that God's freedom to choose might stand, he picked Jacob, not Esau. And that's going to apply all the way through to the understanding of what election is in Christ. That God chooses, not us. And without that truth, by the way, grace cannot be grace. If it's up to you to choose, if God can only do so much, but he's got to leave it up to you in your heart to really commit to Jesus, well, you're going to find out that that means salvation is by works, works of your heart. And yet that's what it's not going to be. He says not because of works. So the purpose of election is so that it's not about you so that you can know for sure it's true. When God decides to save you, you're going to get saved. That's the way it works. Because of him who calls, his power there. Okay, so that idea, we'll come back to that again. God chooses. But to to keep that true, she's told, the older will serve the younger, and then Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this one. There's a lot of ink and a lot of preaching trying to make that word hated go away, basically. Well, it doesn't mean hated, it means didn't choose. It's not as bad as the American hated. Well, maybe. I'm not convinced by it. I actually prefer, when I come to a text like this that challenges my modern sensibilities, I prefer to assume my modern sensibilities are a little skewed. And that God's hatred of someone because that one despises the promises is actually good. And to put this kind of into a category maybe we all can understand, when you have a hero in a movie trying to stop a bad guy, don't you want him to stop the bad guy? Especially when the bad guy is really bad and does evil things. Okay, well, then when God hates evil, that's good. That's good. And in fact, we as sons of God are called to participate in that hatred of evil. If you don't think abortion is a wicked, disgusting blight upon our nation, you're not really paying attention. You've built up a callous to the evil you become comfortable with it now again now we're going to push this into election though but doesn't god decide to hate esau before esau has done anything yeah except no and again let's not question esau could still be saved but the 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 question still matters when esau is born does he deserve to be saved the answer is no He has inherited from Adam, Adam's sin. And so what he deserves, justice for him is hatred. If there is injustice and there's no injustice, but if if you're unfair in somewhere, it's not against Esau. The unfairness is that anybody gets chosen at all. But that's not unfair. That's grace. That's mercy. That's a good thing. God wants to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. That was Romans chapter one and two, all right? So Esau is only getting what he deserves and nothing more when God hates him. Jacob is getting mercy, which is never deserved, but is not unjust when God chooses to make him the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and stay with him his whole life so that he eventually believes in our Lord Jesus Christ as well. Now, I've already kind of answered this, but verse 14 declares it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So you you have to start from the assumption that God is good. God is good. And if he does something, you're like, that doesn't seem good. Guess who's wrong? You are. Why? How do you know? Because you're not good. So since you're born not good, come with the assumption that you're going to run into good things you think are bad. Because you're upside down. And the Bible actually exists to tell you about that, to call you to repentance in it, so that you submit yourself to the will of the Father, the mind of God, and you begin to see the way that he sees, which is that he's got no injustice at all, and yet he is still incredibly merciful. And that is what Christianity is really all about, is that mercy. For he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God reserves the right to do whatever he wants. And you don't get to sit there and say, that's not fair because he's God. The moment you say, that's not fair to God, you demonstrate your traitorous, rebellious heart. So again, I'm gonna get into this though, but but what about, I get it, the feelings are there. What about those who don't believe? There's no way for us as sinful people to not wrestle with this, but we have to do it from the assumption that God gets to choose. And so if he decides to save some and not others, that's not unjust and it's not unmerciful. It's not unfair. It's good and righteous and true. He has had compassion on them because he wanted to. Who are you to tell him what to do with his stuff? Now, again, uh, that's not all there is to say about this, but that's, that's gotta be the final word though at a certain point, okay? So then, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, you're saved by grace. That's the point. Salvation's by grace, not about human will and exertion. And now he's gonna use another Old Testament example to show how God actually hardens those who reject the grace. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It's hard to like that. It's really hard to like that but wait god that's not fair i mean that's what i'm feeling right now i'm talking about it i'm supposed to tell you what it means and i, I can feel how unfair it feels pharaoh what did he do he had no choice but to be born in the family he was born in raised by his parents to believe what he believed taught that he needed to protect his country. And so, of course, making the wise decision to destroy his enemies by throwing their babies into the Nile River. And when they come with this weird wilderness God wanting to be free, he can't let them go and have all the economy fall apart. Even though there's magic they can do, whatever, he hardens his heart. He had no choice but to harden his heart. That doesn't mean he didn't harden his heart. So then when God comes along and says, oh, you're going to keep hardening your heart, even though I'm bringing my word to you and you're going to keep resisting me, then fine. Now I'm going to harden your heart. If you go back and you look at it, I mean, Jesus says to Moses before he sends Moses to Pharaoh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. When he goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then Jesus hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. Jesus hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh chases them out and gets smashed in the Red Sea. Does he die there? We don't know. But all the way along, it's not as though God isn't making Pharaoh do what he's doing. He's raising it up to destroy him as an example of how God destroys evil. And Pharaoh doesn't get to say that's not Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets to say, I deserve it. Even though God will harden whom he will harden. Let's take this to another book for a moment, just to kind of hit it from a different angle. Find 2 Peter chapter 2. It's near the back of your Bible. You go from Revelation through the John books, you end up in the Peter books. 2 Peter chapter 2, we're on page 1018. Actually, we're gonna look at verse nine. It's page 1019 in the Pew Bible, where Peter insists that we remember that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, as believers, from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, it says especially those who indulge in the lust of the flesh. God knows how to save the Christian and how to keep the unbeliever and unbeliever unto damnation. That's actually what he plans to do. He knows how to do it. He will do it. And here again, then, we run into this little contradiction. I'm not going to have you look these verses up, but Ezekiel chapter 18, 23, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. They both say, it's the will of God to save everybody. They both say that. It's the will of God to save everybody. And yet, 2 Peter 2, 9 that we just saw, Romans chapter 9, verse 18 that we just saw, they say he's not going to. Rather, he's actually going to put some people in damnation and keep them there. How does that go together? And the answer is, it doesn't. You submit to Jesus. That's how. It's the mystery of his will. That's how. The closest I can give you is that God has the power to want something and not get it for himself. Which I know for us, that's like, that's impossible. How could you want something, have the power to do it and not do it? Well, you're not God. Your ways are not his ways. This is the power of his restraint, his patience, even his mercy. He's not like us. I think you can come to love this idea when you remember this is about him saving you. All of it, whenever he hardens, I said this already, let's remember it. Whenever he hardens, he does it to save you. Does that mean it's impossible for him to have saved everybody that ever was? Well, that's not a question you get asked, because it's just not what's going to happen. You're like a little child stamping your foot on the ground saying, make the monsters go away and hide in your closet with your eyes closed. It's not what is. What is, is that the way is narrow and few find it. That which leads to salvation. And the way to destruction, it is wide and many are on it. And in fact, once they are on it, at a certain point, God decides just to keep them there. And he does that so that he can pull some of them off of it and some of them are you. And so again, to get mad about him saving you is really weird. It is, it's really weird. It should demonstrate again how backwards we are. He hardens whomever he wills, and this is good news. Now, Paul's going to show how this is actually what he's doing to the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles. That'll be a little more next week with chapter 10. But that he let the Jews reject Jesus so that he could save the world through Jesus. And he let the Jews then not believe as a whole in the resurrected Jesus so that the gospel would be kicked out of Judea and to the rest of the world, becoming what has come down to you today. And someone says, but he couldn't have done it a different way. And it's like, who do you think you are? God is God. You think he doesn't think it through? You're down here, pipsqueak, believing you got a better view. You just don't know. Yeah. All right. So, well, I just kind of hit this already, but verse 19, I'm dealing with this question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Right? That's not fair. Pharaoh didn't have a chance. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you? Oh, man, to answer back to God, will you say, uh, excuse me, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles so the bit about the potter and the clay i think is pretty straightforward right like does a pot that the clay that the potter makes does it get to say afterwards that wasn't fair like that's kind of a silly thing And so he makes one, and it's kind of like the chamber pot, right? And he makes one, and it's the urn for grandma's ashes, right? And they're both from the same initial clay, and so what? Who gets to say? The potter gets to say. Okay, well now, who is the potter? God? Jesus? What's the dirt that's getting made into vessels? Us? Huh? And so if some of it is made to go to hell now, so what? Why do you think that's bad? Well, it's actually your selfishness at work. You just are afraid it might've been you. It's part of what's going on. But it's not you because you've heard about Jesus. He is risen. Hallelujah. So it's something to rejoice in to know that you have been declared a vessel made for glory. Okay, now let's do the full intellectual game here. All right, let me kind of give it to you from the big picture. God predestined all mankind to be created good and we were. in that he has chosen you to live forever even though you are part of that good creation that became bad and he did that before we became bad so he chose you before adam fell to be saved bible says all of this we know this to be true Then Adam fell. And in that, some of those who were created to be good became evil. In fact, all of them did. And from that moment, all of them were predestined also to hell. Then he sends the wild card of his word into the midst of that the spirit that blows wherever he pleases, choosing those whom from beforehand he had elected to salvation. And finding resistance from those who will not believe. Those then who will not believe are ordained from the fall to go to hell, and they have no way out because they will not believe. It's not as though Jesus didn't die for them, it's not as though the word doesn't call them. They will not believe. Think of Jesus standing over Jerusalem saying, How I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. So, those who are held in hardness have hardened themselves and have received the punishment of their own sin in itself. They then are chosen for damnation, and you can even say ordained for it. But they are not eternally pre elected, predestined for it, the way that you are eternally predestined to be saved. Now, again, I did it as best as I could intellectually. And if you were keeping notes and writing math, it was 2 plus 2 equals 5 the will of god it's the mystery of our faith it's good news to the believer and it's strange it shows that your flesh that as a believer your flesh is still complaining that's just how bad we are but that's also how good he is that he doesn't let that get in the way of he is risen risen hallelujah okay so he has endured then the evil of mankind Waiting on its damnation in order to save you from it for glory. And so we just looked at, as indeed he says in Hosea, verse 25, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So the idea here is that all have fallen short of the glory of God and then are justified by his grace, that anybody who believes was originally not a believer, but has been chosen to believe by him. And that especially if that belief moves from those who are Jews by blood to those who are not Jews by blood, this is only the way it's always been, that those who are unbelievers, not my people, get made into believers, my people. So again, can a Jew be saved? Yes. In Jesus. That's how. And so one who is not my people now can become my people again. And that happens when the Spirit wakens them to faith with the call. We'll get into that again next week, a little more, with a whole bit about olive branches being grafted on and off. So you can put that in the back of your head. By the way, this quote from Hosea, and you might remember the story of Hosea. Uh, he's this guy who God says, Hey, go marry that prostitute. She's going to cheat on you a lot. You're going to stay married to her. And you're gonna have some kids, you're gonna name your kids not my people and not beloved. <laughs> Whew. that was a tough road right there yeah but it was also that God could say, look you're loving, not my people and you're loving, not beloved is what I'm doing to y'all yeah and your unfaithfulness, I should say Gomer's unfa- unfaithfulness to you is what you do to me, but I remain faithful to you. And this again is not merely about Jew Gentile, this is about all the human race and the way God is enacting his love for us, so that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that is, you're not Jewish, or you're not a believer, both count, in the very place they will be called sons of the living God. We who have fallen short of the glory of God are justified by his grace as a gift. And we've been made so that there is now no condemnation for you who are in Jesus Christ. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. You are sons of the living God. And verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. So his point here is that in every time, in every place, it's not what you see. It's what the word of God is doing. So when David's king, and he's got the the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant, and he's got peace on various sides because he's won all the battles that God has given him. Does that mean every Jew alive that day believed? And the answer is no. Only a remnant believed. The way is narrow and few find it. The wide path to destruction, many were on it, patting themselves on the back for being such great religious people. Same thing in Solomon's day, same thing in Hezekiah's day, same thing in Abraham's day, same thing today. So that no matter how many people there are, we must believe that salvation is of a minority and that this is God's will because this is God's will. And that therefore it is, it is good, not evil. Mm-hmm. All right, so verse 28, it continues, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Ah, that helps a little bit for me, right? So if it's only a minority, they're going to be saved. Wait, that seems bad. Shouldn't it be everyone that gets saved? He wants to be just, too. He must show that those who have rejected him end up without him. He must show that. And that's a good will. That's where hell is part of the gospel. It's good news that God will punish mankind for all eternity for its rejection of God. He wants to do that because that's right. And to think that's not right is to think way too highly of yourself and way too low of your own sin. The sin which indeed, when God came among us, what did we do? But we killed him. That's how bad we are. And so we truly do deserve this eternal punishment. And he intends to reckon that speedily. But he's also so good that he wants to save you from it. Both of these things are true. God wants to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. So as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That is, as fire fell out of the sky and destroyed those two cities, so is how it would have been for everybody everywhere if God had not saved you, us, Christianity. So what shall we say? What's the conclusion of this? This is verse 30. Previously in the book, where Paul has says, what shall we say then? He'll then ask sort of another question, which he intends the answer to be no to. But in this case, he's not. In this case, he's really concluding. What are we going to say is the actual answer to this? That Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness, that is, people who were outside of the Jewish covenant and weren't trying to earn salvation in any way, but were content to go to hell, that they have attained righteousness. You've been saved by a word from outside of you. He is risen. Hallelujah. So you have retained a righteousness that is by faith. But that's been given to the nation. Verse 31, but that Israel, that is the Jewish people, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, that is, they tried to prove their worthiness to be adopted into the covenant, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. See, it's still about grace versus works. And so the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people, according to Paul at that time, was because there were some of the Jewish people, not all, because there was a remnant that believed in Christ. The early church is made up of Jews, but there were many who rejected grace and wanted to believe in their own righteousness. And that out here among us, we Gentiles who believe now, it's because of grace, not because of anything we have done which is where everything he says about the Jews in chapter 9 and chapter 10 can rightly be said about the Christian church now. Because certainly there are Christians now who think, well, this was my grandpa's church. So we should be able to do whatever I want in it, because we've been here for 80 years. Right? There are Christians who think that. Or, or they think, oh, you know what? You're not really a Christian if you don't keep the Sabbath. You got to keep the Sabbath. You can't eat pork either, by the way. You got to follow the diet of Jesus. There are Christians who teach all manner of crazy works righteousness. The whole Reformation is about a fight about indulgences, which is you gotta buy your salvation by submitting to the Pope with a few coins here and there. And the other side, you have the charismatics Much of American Christianity today, even those who are believers, are overrun with charismania in which they teach that you don't really get Christianity unless you have some sort of higher level experience. And the only way you do that is by preparing yourself and fasting and trying hard and getting sin out of your life. So in many cases, it's very clear that those who have the promises can reject the promises. And so then the lesson here, again, is cling to the promises. When you come with your heart to this question, why some, not others, say, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to know, but I know you've chosen me because you've washed me with your promise. You sanctify me with your body and blood. And even though my own heart would continue to question your authority, you have given me a spirit which knows that that's something I want to repent of. So that finally, when this stone of stumbling shows up, you may know that that's Jesus. Here, I'll read the text. As it is written, I kind of skipped a little bit. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Christianity is offensive. Christianity is a scandal Christianity seems unfair to evil mankind, and the place most central to that is that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of all the world, and the only way to get that benefit is to not do anything about it at all. Just to believe it when you hear it, but you didn't do that. You didn't do that. So you either end up standing on Jesus, he's the foundation, he's the rock on which you're built, and saying, I don't deserve to be here thank you, Jesus. Or you end up crushed by Jesus, at which you say, that's not fair, Jesus. And he says, okay, fine, I'll crush you more. Those are the two places, right? Now, St. Paul, I I don't want to preach you into the kingdom with some sort of false promise to guarantee there's not a single one of you who will ever not believe. I can't say that, but I can say you're here because you're hearing God call you. And he never sends that call out without truth. He never kind of calls, but means for you to not hear it. He always calls to justify. That's why you're here. That's what this supper is going to do. What about those who aren't here? Well, again, that's the question you're not supposed to ask. Or finally, if you do, you go back to the start of chapter nine, where it says, I would that they could believe too. And rather than just saying that, kind of kicking the ground, oh, I wish there were more believers, turn to Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, and say, Jesus, can you make more believers? Jesus, you know that neighbor of mine, that coworker of mine, that friend of mine, that family member of mine, by name? Jesus, can you bring them to faith? And then be ready, because then it's, Jesus, can you give me the courage to speak the words of life to them, to not hold my tongue, to not back down in fear, to believe in my election with enough certainty to know that if they don't like me because of what I said, it don't matter to me. That's them hardening themselves. Again, so that that's where this needs to lead, and I guess we'll we'll come back to that probably next week as we wrestle with with chapter ten. Uh, nine is just the first part of these three chapters that all hold together. What of the Jews? What of you? You believe and it's free for all in the name of Jesus.